Hello and welcome to The Beef Edge, the Chagas Beef Podcast, for all your latest news, information and advice for Irish beef farmers. I'm Catherine Egan and on this week's episode, we're going to hear the four presentations that were presented at the Chagas National Beef Conference in December. The title of the discussion were Key Enablers to Improving Profitability on Beef Farms. It was facilitated by Trevor Boland, Chagas Future Beef Programme participant. On the night, Dr. Natasha Munier discussed abattoir lesions, Dr. Colin Byrne discussed age at first calving, and Nikki Byrne discussed red clover. It started with Dr. Paul Crossan, beef enterprise leader at Chagas Grange, and the title of his presentation was Assessing the Potential to Improve Key Profit Drivers on Beef Farms. When I initially set out to look at these profit drivers, I, I was going to look at four or five different you know, key drivers that affect profitability on beef farms. But really, in the context of a 15-minute presentation, there's only a couple of things that we can really dwell on. So if we look at it from the point of view of profitability, the key issues are how can we reduce production costs? And looking at production costs, really all of our research revolves around maximising lifetime performance from graze pasture. Even though we have seen presentations throughout the year of, of the impact of fertiliser cost increases uh, on graze, the cost of grazed grass, you still have a relativity, graze grass at one, grass silage is about two and a half times more expensive, concentrates about four and a half times more expensive. So regardless of the increase in costs for all feeds, grazed grass and achieving maximum performance from grazed grass is absolutely essential. And we need to have long grazing seasons, good lifetime performance. In terms of suckling systems, what we want to do is calve compactly in the spring so that as cow demand increases and indeed as calf demand increases throughout the season, we turn out the pasture. We have a highly nutritious, low cost feed uh, and we want to get our cows on, the, on that system as soon as possible. Of course, we have some very efficient, specialised autumn calving systems, but by and large, spring calving is the lowest cost way we have of producing beef. Um, efficiently producing replacements, we do need to provide replacements, something in the order of 16 to 18% is optimal in terms of genetic progress, and so we do need to be efficient. Uh, my colleague Colin Bourne will speak a little bit about age at first calving, I'm going to touch on it here as well in, in a few slides on. Uh, but reducing the number of replacements we require, if we require more than that 18%, up to 25% in some herds, obviously that's a cost and a reduction in output on our, on our farms. Probably from the, in the context of other enterprises, beef is the enterprise where uh, you need good quality winter feed. So we do need to optimise performance, and that's not maximising performance. We do know about you know, the ph phenomenon of, of compensatory growth, so we don't want to maximise performance during uh, winter feeding periods. But certainly for that first winter and the second winter, if you're going back to grass for a third season, you're looking at 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 kilos a day. Anything more than that, we have plenty of research to show that the animals that perform better uh, will lose that weight advantage come the middle towards the end of the, of the subsequent grazing season. Of course, that's only half the equation. The, the other half is output value. And we need to be very clear about output value. The number one element of that is optimising uh, uh, individual animal performance. You know, live weight performance, reproductive performance. Optimising individual animal performance. A lot of focus goes into stocking rate, and for sure where you have good individual animal performance, carrying more of them efficiently will make you more profitable. But the first and foremost step is having good individual animal performance. And then it's about maximising stocking rate according to whatever farm constraints you have. That might be labour, it might be facilities, it might be your own time, it might be the availability of specialised skills, and indeed it might be the availability of the type of animal you want. If you're in a calf-to-beef system, 
there might be a, a, a limit in terms of the availability of the animal you want at the price that you can pay. So maximizing stocking rates when you have good individual animal performance. So if we look at the key profit drivers, and this is a piece of work we carried out uh, for our open day this year. And uh, we looked at suckler calf, and we did the same for dairy calf to beef systems, and the profit drivers are pretty similar. Uh, so I'm just going to look at it in the context of suckler uh, systems uh, in, the, in the interest of time. For the suckler calf to weanling phase, the number one profit driver that influences performance is age of first calf. I'll come back to it a little bit later, and as I said, my colleague Colin Bourne will touch on it later as well. In the context of suckler weaning to beef systems, and, and this really is not surprising, uh, the number one factor driving profitability is daily gain. Good daily gain uh, in cattle production systems, and we all know this, uh, is key to maximising profitability. Regardless of whether you're in a dairy calf to beef system uh, or in a suckler calf to beef system. And just as an aside, as part of this analysis, we also looked at greenhouse gas emissions uh, and, you know, aged first calving, where you reduce aged first calving, uh, you reduce emissions, or to turn to the flip side, where aged first calving is older, emissions are greater. Looking at average daily gain, improving average daily gain uh, improves, improves, uh, or it improves profitability uh, and reduces greenhouse gas emissions. So I'm going to focus on live weight gain for the next few slides, and I've just taken a 10-year trend line in terms of live weight performance for, for beef cattle in Ireland. Uh, I've looked at heifers, either coming from the suckler herd or from the dairy beef, coming from the dairy side of the house. I looked at steers from suckler systems or from, uh, derived from dairy uh, dams uh, and young bulls. And you can see that you know, from 2012 uh, right through to 2021, we've had really, really good improvements in live weight performance. And I think sometimes we're slow to you know, point out where, uh, where we have made progress and we have made uh, improvements. And look across the lines here, I mean, we're 4 to 5% on the heifer side, so you know, that's, that's, that's reasonable performance over a 10-year period. Steers, plus 10%, 10-11% improvement in steer live weight performance in a 10-year period. Uh, bulls, 8% on the suckler side, 1% on, on the dairy side. So I think it's, it's worthwhile where we do see improvements in performance, particularly where this is one of our key profit drivers, that we, 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 we emphasise that uh, and we, we try and, if you like, ascertain where that has arrived from. And, and, and look, it's difficult to, put, to, to break this out in terms of what drove uh, to, to, what, to what extent. But certainly CARP respects the QPS came in in 2009, a greater focus on aged slaughter, a greater focus on the 400 kilo carcass, and that would have had an impact on slaughter age, so attempting to get animals uh, into the specs at an earlier age. Herd health, we're going to hear from Natasha in the next presentation, and I think, look, it's, again, there's some really, really interesting information I think you're going to see in, in, in the next few moments uh, around the impact of improving herd health on, on live weight performance and days to slaughter. AHI established in 2009, beef head check programme, parasite programmes, calf care programmes, BVD programmes, yonage programmes. We've had a host of programmes that all in their own way are having an impact on live weight performance. Genetics, the Eurostar reviews in 2012, 2015, uh, there's constant genetic progress coming from BI stations, coming from farmers using the best bulls. Uh, BDGP, genomics coming in around that time, 2015 and 16 and then B B BDGP programme driving that from 2016. So genetics clearly has a role, as we know, in terms of live performance. All of this requires advisory and KT. We need to deliver this information. We need to get uptake of this information and dissemination. Uh, our advisory and KT programmes, if we go back to 2009, the Chagas Farmers Journal Better Farm programme was established. 
Uh, we also had uh, European and national government funded KT schemes in the meantime. Uh, we have today launched the DB500, uh, last year the Future Beef programme. So there are a, a number of programmes, and I know the individual processors and individual organisations uh, also have KT programmes. All of these are having an impact. Very difficult to put a value on each of those, but we know the health aspects, the genetic improvement, feed quality improvements, all of these are happening. Uh, equally, we need to have KT programmes to expedite that, to get that adopted uh, to the greatest possible extent. And finally, I suppose, producer standards, and finally, in terms of what I have here, I'm sure people can think of other things that have driven that. Uh, Borobia S-Class, so a revision of the old BQAS in 2017, we now have a sustainable, sustainability beef and lamb assurance scheme, uh, again, driving greater standards, greater focus, a little bit like your NCT, it's a torture when it comes up, but you do have to make these improvements when you know what's happening. When your BQS comes up, you do, you do need to look at your paperwork, you do need to look at your management standards on the farm, and all of these things are, are, are continuous improvement uh, in terms of, of, of management on farms. What does that mean? Well, I suppose improvements in livelihood performance predominantly manifest themselves as earlier slaughter age. So if we look at slaughter age, again, the same uh, um, arrangement in this slide. Suckler beef and dairy beef for heifers, suckler beef and dairy beef for steers, and suckler beef and dairy beef for bulls. And you can see, uh, in terms of the slaughter age reductions, the only one, and we do need to look at this a little bit closer, I suspect there might be some uh, interaction with, with first calving heifers on the suckler beef side, but if we look across the board, dairy beef heifers has gone from 25.2 to 24.1 months of age. Massive progress on the steer side. 30 months to 26.8 months for, for, for sucklers. 29.7, so in around 30 to 26 for dairy beef steers. That's really substantial progress. I mean, you should recognise that as an industry at farm level, the progress that has been made uh, in terms of livelihood performance uh, and, and slaughter age. The same on the, on, the, on the young bull side, less of a, uh, a reduction on the, uh, for dairy bred uh, young bulls, uh, but certainly the suckler young bulls, uh, a nice reduction in, in slaughter rate. Importantly, this has, in, in almost all categories, come with no reduction in carcass weight. In fact, in a lot of cases, we've seen improvements in carcass weight. So if you look at the heifer side, suckler beef heifers, no change in, in aged slaughter, but we have 20 kilos heavier in carcass. Uh, no change for the dairy beef, uh, three kilos heavier for suckler beef, so we've a, a three month, 3.2 month younger slaughter age, uh, and no change, in, so we're holding our carcass weight, it's about three kilos heavier, so for all intents and purposes, uh, there's no change there. Slightly lighter on the dairy beef side, but again, you know, over three months younger. Uh, and on the bull side, no change uh, for, for either suckler bulls or dairy beef bulls. So, and that's a positive thing. We've, we've reduced slaughter age and we haven't lost anything in terms of output from those animals. So what are the implications of that? Firstly, less feed. We're slaughtering animals, same weight, uh, a lot younger. That's less feed. Facility savings, labour savings, where the animals, in some cases, don't need to go back into the shed again for a, for a, for a subsequent winter. Uh, in other cases, they don't need to go back out to pasture or they're slaughtered earlier out of pasture or earlier in the shed. Lower greenhouse gas emissions, the director mentioned the importance of greenhouse gas emissions. We have a food vision report, we have climate targets, so greenhouse gas emissions are really very much in the front line. But apart from all of that, we export 90 to 95% of the beef that we produce. Our customers are asking us, what is the carbon footprint? What are we doing to reduce our carbon footprint? So from a customer perspective, we have to be showing improvement, and I think we have a really good story to tell in that regard. And ultimately, it's about profitability. And I'll show it in the next slide when we drill down a little bit into one of the systems. Where you slaughter early, or particularly where you retain carcass weight, 
uh, you will drive profitability at farm level. So I'm going to take one example here and look at the suckler steers uh, over a 10 year period. And you can see that's, that's a, a little bit more detail around the previous slide. We've gone from 30 months of age to 26.8 months of age. So that's a really you know, substantial reduction in slaughter rate. A little bit choppy, and you're always going to get that. Some years are going to increase slightly, some years are going to go down. You can particularly see the impact of fodder crisis years, 2013, 2012, 2018, uh, the, the, the protests of 2019. All of these things have an impact. But by and large, we could draw a straight line through this and show uh, really continuous and steady progress. So on the suckler steer side, we're slaughtering almost 100 days earlier. You know, and that's, that's, that's really enormous progress. Similar carcass weights, as I said. Similar grading, R equals 3 equals. In fact, they're slightly better, but in the context of what we're looking at here, uh, no change. Greenhouse gas emission savings. If the cattle we are killing today, uh, or in 2021, were slaughtered at the same age as, as the cattle, similar cohort of cattle in 2012, uh, we would have produced an extra 40, a uh, little over 40 kilotons of CO2 equivalents. That's a big savings in greenhouse gas emissions. It's a massive reduction in carbon footprint as well. Again, going back to the customer piece. But the most important line here from my perspective, uh, in terms of what does it mean at farm level? Uh, this is at feed costs, and, we, and, we, and the director again mentioned the implications of the war in, in Ukraine, the implications of the feed costs and so on. Uh, and you know, don't need to tell you what's happening on concentrate price, we don't need to say what happened on fertilizer prices. But at current feed costs, that's a saving of 25 million euros to the industry, to the farm industry in terms of feed savings. That's grass, grass pasture saving, grass silage savings, and concentrate savings, just for that animal cohort. So it's about 100 euros, a little less than 100 euros per head in feed cost savings. And that's, I mean, that's, that's really, really important to bear that in mind. All of these traits are profitability and farm level performance traits. So I suppose the question is, is that it? Have we, you know, have we, have, have we achieved that potential and is there, much, is there much more we can do? Well, there is, and just to take one example, this is the fat class uh, of steers and heifers killed in 2021. And without going into detail here, what this information is saying that, let's say a two plus, so two plus is our, our industry standard, we want everything above two plus. So let's say you, you tower with a three minus to give yourself a little bit of breathing space in terms of meeting the fat class. 84% of our heifers are greater than, greater than uh, three minus, and 70% of steers are greater than three minus. So there is potential there, but even more so, if we go greater than four minus, greater than or equal to four minus, half of our heifers are greater than or equal to four minus, and 25% of our steers are greater than or equal to four minus. It'll differ depending on breed, it'll differ depending on, on farm economics, whether it's, it's a sensible thing to carry them a little bit over a fat class. If they're still gaining weight, you might think it's a sensible thing to do. Uh, and in some cases, depending on price movements, if it's increasing, if you're gaining a little bit of weight, then maybe that's, that, that, that makes sense in your situation. But look at the biological efficiency of carrying animals for longer. This is uh, work carried out at Chagas Grange, and we looked at finishing animals over a three-month period or over a six-month period. Now, this is, you know, extending the finishing period much, pretty much, much beyond, beyond what you would do commercially, but it, it illustrates the point around biological efficiency. Your average daily gain where you slaughter over a three-month period is 1.4. Where you kill over a six-month period, your daily gain really drops off dramatically to 1.16, so about a 20% reduction in daily gain. Carcass gain, similar story, about a 20% reduction. Fat, uh, fat score in this case goes up from a 3 equals to a 3 plus. So you do gain a fat score, of course, but there's a big cost to that. Particularly if you look at concentrate intake, kilograms of dry matter per day, 
from 10 kilos to 11.2 kilos on average over the finishing period. So what's the feed efficiency? How much feed do you need to get each kilo of gain, depending on whether you kill over a, or finish over a three month or over a six month period? <coughs> you go from 7.2 to close to 10. Uh, on a lightweight basis, or 9, or sort of 10-ish, let's say, to close to 14 on a carriage weight basis. So you're about 40% less efficient when you go into that number, and that's, that's an economic cost in terms of the amount of feed you require to, to put into that system uh, to, to, to generate a kilo of gain. I won't go into this because I know the, uh, the later speakers are going, to, are going to touch on elements of this. There's a lot around live weight performance uh, in terms of what's driving it. You know, obviously on a suckling system we want good milk. Good calf rearing, particularly in your dairy calf to beef systems, but equally in your, in your suckling system, animal health and husbandry and so on. Good haired health uh, will be touched on in the, next, in the next presentation. I mentioned at the outset, grazing management, grass is our cheapest feed. Good grazing management, the availability of, of pasture over a long grazing season. Quality forage, we need quality forage for our winter periods. Optimising indoor feeding, again I touched on this at the outset. We don't want to maximise performance. That's from, a, from an economic point of view, uh, is, 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 is not a desirable thing to do. And genetics, we, we need to continue to improve genetics, we need to continue to focus on genetics and using high Eurostar bulls and high Eurostar sires. So just moving on to the second profit driver, uh, age at first calving. So the 10 year trend, and this is the only slide I have up where there is a dairy uh, 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 figure in it. So age of first calving, if you look at it on the suckler side over a 10 year period, we've seen very little progress. We've gone from you know, 31.6 to 31.3 months uh, first calving. So there is a lot of potential there in terms of age of first calving. If you look at it on the dairy side, the age of first calving in the same 10 year period, gone from 28 months of age uh, to 26 months of age. You know, so there has been progress there. You know, there might be a view that they calve everything at two years of age and that they always have. Certainly not, 28 months of age or thereabouts in 2012, 26 months of age now. So there's still scope, I'm sure, for progress there. But looking at the suckler side, 31 months of age uh, in terms of age at first calving. And as I said, little change uh, in that 10 year period. And um, again, drilling down a little bit more into the most recent year, 2021. And this is where I see, you know, grounds for optimism in terms of, of, of age at first calving. As I said, age, average age of first calving, 31.3 months of age, but there is a very obvious peak at two years of age. If we look at two years of age uh, calving, more, uh, in and around a third of our first calving sucklers calve at less than 26 months of age. And that's where you want to be, that 22 to 26 months of age in terms of a two-year-old calving system. So if we look at any four-month period, most of our cows actually calve in and around that two years of age. And that's a really positive message, you know. Uh, we, again, there's a view that we can't have suckers at two years of age. Uh, I know uh, it's going to be covered in, in, in one of the later presentations, and I know uh, we have a farmer speaker who, 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 will, who will speak about his own experience doing it. But clearly the national data is showing that, you know, the plurality, if you like, of cows calve in and around two years of age. Uh, but equally, we have a lot of cows that calve at, you know, three years of age. We're in a seasonal calving system, so if you miss the boat in this spring, you're not calving in the autumn, then the next boat comes the following spring. So, we have 31% of our cows calving at greater than 34 months of age, and that's again a cost in the system. Um, the question might be asked, well, are those later calving cows, are those the later maturing breeds, and it's all early maturing breeds in the, in, at two years of age? Again, looking at the information here, that's not the case. We have a lot of first calving cows in our late maturing breed types. 
So massive potential there. Uh, what is what, what would be the potential savings or, or gains? So I just looked at one piece of analysis to see what could be gained in terms of moving some of those three-year-old calvers uh, into a two-year-old calving system. So this is the trend line in, in terms of the, the cohorts calving at different age groups in 2021. Again, you'll see the peak calving in and around two years of age, uh, and the second big peak in and around three years of age. So just in terms of a, a hypothetical scenario, I looked at moving 50% of those three-year-old calvers to a two-year-old calving system. So you can see that you're moving some of those, uh, it's about 25,000, 24,162 if you look at the national population, if we move 50% of those animals into a two-year calving system. What would that mean? It would move our average first calving age by two months. So our average first calving age would move from 30.2 to 28.2. I think that's, you know, in terms of the timelines, let's say to 2030 or thereabouts, I think that's the type of numbers, you know, we're not going to get to 24 months of age, we're not going to calve all our, all our first calvers at, at 24 months of age, but we have to have some, uh, some target in terms of reducing that. That would reduce greenhouse gas emissions nationally by about 50 kilotons. It would reduce our carbon footprint very substantially. But most importantly, it would reduce feed costs by about 400 euros per head. So moving from a, 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 a three-year-old to a two-year-old calving system. And if we multiply that across those 25,000 or so uh, sucker cows, it's worth about 10 million to the industry. You know, in terms of feed costs. And these are, these are real money. This is real feed costs. And again, uh, I don't need to spell it out in terms of, of, of where we find ourselves this last uh, 12 to 18 months. So in summary, Chairman, um, the objective is to maximise live weight performance at least cost. Um, high beef merit genetics, um, quality grazed pasture, quality winter feed, appropriate to the system that you're operating. Excellent animal health and high standards in animal husbandry. And I think, I'm, I'm really confident looking at the data that in all of those categories, we have made really good progress. I think there's more to be had, but we have made really good progress over the last 10 years. Particularly in live weight gain, uh, average reduction in 65 days. If we look across all our categories, we've reduced slaughter age by over two months in the last 10 years uh, in our steer and heifer systems and about three weeks in our bull systems. Um, Massive savings here, and look at I've gone through the numbers. Feed cost savings, reduction in labour, less greenhouse gas emissions. Um, less progress is evident for age of first calving, but again, when I looked into the, the actual numbers, you know, you look at the high level numbers, and, and the director again made a comment at the outset, you know, that an average height is a multitude, and the average age of first calving of 31.3 or 31.6 months of age, whichever year you look at it, um, you might think, you know, we're, 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 really not, we're really not where we want to be at. But when you break down the numbers, you actually have a very substantial cohort of cows calving uh, at two years of age. So there's obviously big opportunities there, uh, and I think there's a lot of potential to make gains in that category as well. So, Chairman, I'll leave it at that. This was followed by Dr. Natasha Munier, Programme Manager for Beef Health Check with Animal Health Ireland, and the title of her presentation was Abattoir Lesions in Cattle are Associated with an Increased Age at Slaughter. I'm just starting off by saying that what I'm going to tell you initially is not news to you. Absolutely not. Poor health is widely recognised to negatively affect performance in cattle. We know this. I don't have to convince anybody to call their vet when there's, when there's an outbreak on farm. But what I want to talk to you today about the diseases that might go unrecognised in cattle, subclinical diseases that you don't necessarily see any outward signs, um, and often all you see are lesions at slaughter. And uh, 
that this, this forms the basis of the Beef Health Shape program that Animal Health has put together. And it's essentially delivered uh, in partnership with Meat Industry Island and the department. And we've been collecting abattoir data, health data from, from abattoirs uh, from 17 factories nationwide since 2016. And the primary aim of the program is to collect this health information that you might not necessarily be aware of as, as farmers and deliver that back to yourselves. So the data collection, it, it happens online in real time with the veterinary inspectors that are on the line uh, with the, the red offal looking at livers and at lungs. And they're specifically looking for three main categories of, of diseases. And those are liver fluke parasites, liver abscesses, and pneumonias in the lungs. And that's collected on the line. And the liver fluke, they actually distinguish between whether they see live parasites or the actual uh, fluke worms on, uh, on the livers or whether it's just damage to the liver from those parasites. That gets captured immediately online uh, and, and it's, it's sent on a, on a regular basis to ICBF. And uh, as well as then for each batch of animals that get sent to slaughter, you as farmers receive a report that give information about the, the liver and the lung lesions at slaughter. If for whatever reason you might not have that report or you've lost the one from a couple of years ago, all of that data is actually also captured on ICBF itself and is accessible to you as, uh, as farmers uh, through, through the services uh, tab on ICBF uh, under AHI Animal Health. There's actually a tab for Beef Health Check that you can access that information. You can also make that information available to your veterinarians and to your, your chocolate advisors. Um, if you give them permission, they can access that data to help make decisions around health for your, for your animals specifically. But the data as a whole is also um, contributing to, to breeding values and genetic evaluations. And ICBF, uh, for, for a few years now, have proofs um, that, that rank the predicted prevalence of liver fluke. Essentially what that means for AHI bulls, that, if AI bulls that are available, uh, there, there is, um, you can choose bulls that are less likely to have liver fluke um, in, in their progeny. And, and that's available on the ICBF website uh, under the genetic evaluations, TB and liver fluke. At the moment, it's not incorporated, that, uh, as I understand it, into the main uh, breeding values. But you can still, if, if you're coming from a particularly fluky area, for example, think long term and start to breed animals that, that, are, less, or that are more resilient uh, to liver fluke. The other thing that we're doing with this data at a national level is it's anonymously sent to us at AHI and we report on it nationally and we also do some analysis, which is what I'm going to go into a little bit today um, as well. So just to start with liver fluke, um, I, th I think it's, it's very widespread within Ireland. I think we're all aware of it as a parasite uh, and it needs this intermediate uh, snail host and wet ground for its life cycle. So as you can see from that map, the areas in, if you're from the northwest of Ireland, you're more likely to have liver fluke. A large proportion of herds are affected um, that, that will actually have signs of liver fluke at slaughter. Um, and that tends to be most of our, our, our beef suckler systems and sheep areas. Um, and it, what it is, is as those, those, um, those, those immature liver flukes migrate through the liver, they cause a lot of damage. Um, it can result in poor thrive for the animals. That's something that you'd actually see with them. But usually, uh, and it can result in acute deaths if it's a very high uh, percentage of liver fluke. And in sheep, that's particularly a problem, that you'll just have sheep that die of anemia. But in cattle, what you see more is a chronic condition. You might not see anything at all. All that it might have is, uh, there's previous studies in Ireland have shown a decrease in weight at slaughter. Um, and, and 
other studies have also shown decrease in fertility, for example, and, and some other and, and, and condition and so on. But what are we seeing at slaughter? So this is just the, the, the figures that we have for the young stock. Since we've been recording in 2016, uh, liver fluke damage, so that's chronic damage to the liver, but not necessarily seeing parasites itself, is that top yellow line that you're seeing there. And the red line underneath it is just if they're seeing live uh, parasites at slaughter. So live parasites are seen in about 1.2% of animals that come in through the abattoirs as part of the program and um, liver fluke damage around about 5% of animals that are coming through. And we had a particularly dry period in 2018 where it says there's no data, that we unfortunately couldn't capture data during that period, but that was a drought in Ireland, the summer of 2018. And liver fluke hasn't quite recovered since that time. So the, the levels have dropped after that summer and, and they've remained fairly low um, and there could be a number of reasons for that. When it comes to liver abscesses, that's then the second condition that we see at slaughter. It's actually unrelated to the liver fluke itself. This is more related to uh, ruminal acidosis, uh, which can be clinical or subclinical. And this relates usually to feeding a high energy ration. So finishing your animals, usually what happens is you, is you might quickly change to, to feeding a concentrate feed with lower roughage. And if the rumen isn't given time to adapt, you get an acidosis, there's an overgrowth of the wrong type of bacteria, and, and you get liver abscesses or laminitis affecting the hooves and some lameness. And, and that can be associated with redu reduced weight gains and feed efficiency that, that's been shown in previous studies as well. And the third condition then is pneumonia. And, and that I think is something that we're all familiar with, respiratory disease. It's particularly a problem in calves, um, but it's a very complex disease in that it has multiple causes, bacteria, viruses, uh, even lungworm, and then combining those with environmental stresses such as poor ventilation or, um, uh, or, or for young stock, maybe around weaning, transport, housing. There's a, there's a lot of factors that can go into whether animals actually get sick from this or not. But there could be a, a chronic side of this disease, um, and, and then the, it's also associated just with lower weight, um, lower carcass weight, and decreased growth performance amongst others. What are we seeing then in the abattoir since 2016? Liver abscesses in around 3.5% of animals at slaughter, and pneumonia is in around 1.6% of animals at slaughter. And that they've remained fairly steady uh, over the years. There hasn't been any decrease uh, that we've seen. So we've been collecting this health information since 2016, um, up until 2021 in this particular study. And we've, we've looked here specifically in heifers, young, uh, steers and young bulls, but we've also got information for cows and, and for bulls, and those tend to be your cull uh, cows from the dairy, dairy side mostly. But what can this data actually tell us about the age to slaughter? So we have a large number of records, and um, I, th I think Paul's already gone into some of this age information, but for, for the data set that we have, this is just a spread of the, the age of the heifers when they, they, they uh, go to slaughter. And we're averaging out on this data set around 777 days uh, for your heifers, but you can see that there's, there's a range, there's a very widespread. Um, the same is true for, for, your, uh, for your steers, there's more steers that are slaughtered compared to the heifers, but again there's this massive range um, and the steers are coming in at a slightly older. We also have these definite peaks at about 30 months of age and 36 months of age uh, for our heifers and steers. When it comes to our young bulls, those tend obviously to be sorted younger, uh, just, just under 580 days. 
And then for them as well, you've got uh, the 16 month, strictly speaking, young bulls, are the, the cutoff there is 16 months, which is why you have that peak just before that. Um, but there are some older, up to 24 months, uh, that are classified as young bulls by the Antoise. So there's a range of age. How do we pull then what kind of, uh, what the health data, how do you interpret the health data in, in light of this range? There's, there's so many other factors as well that influence the time to finish. You know, you're looking at weight, you're looking at fat score, you're making decisions as farmers as to when to send your animals to slaughter. It, it depends as well on when the animals are born as to how they're finishing, if they're finishing off grass, finishing off concentrates, how quick those average daily gains are, what is the, the breed types would influence their age and, and how they grow and whether they're ready for slaughter or not. And, and the herd type is, is and the production system. And that's actually, we've got this really large data set, but the truth is that's one of the hardest things to glean from, from farmers, is, is what is the herd type. And we, there's recently been a study that has classified herds in Ireland um, according to some main distinctions, beef, dairy, fattening, stores, um, and, and trading herds, and then some subcategories as well, where they've actually tried to identify, well, who's a, who's a beef to, to uh, a, a, a suckler beef system, who is, who's rearing dairy males, and just trying to identify those to help us understand this data a little bit better. But the other things to consider is, is the geographic location. If we think about liver fluke, that it's definitely more of a problem in the northwest, um, and, and then the other the health conditions. So we've, we've, we've considered all of these factors, and what we've seen that when it comes to liver fluke, uh, with heifers and steers, that we have, on average, in beef herds, that they're 38 days older if they have any sign of liver fluke at slaughter. So it's slightly higher, uh, there's some variability for this depending on the type of herd. So if, if, if we consider all herds, it's around 40 to 46 days older in heifers and steers, um, and, and it can go as low as 32 days when we're looking at uh, suckler herds. So there's a little bit of a range, but for beef herds in general, it's about 38 days older. There's no effect in young bulls which I thought was quite interesting, and it's probably related to the burden of uh, liver fluke that, that these animals are picking up. For the most part, they're already in their finishing stage when they would be grazing off pastures when, when fluke is a, is, is a risk. Um, but we, 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 don't see, we don't see an effect in them. The effect of poor health on performance is also cumulative, so over time it will get worse. It's worse for chronic conditions. Um, and what we see here is it's just we've split the liver fluke into an active liver fluke, so where we're actually seeing the parasite at slaughter and when there's liver fluke damage. And you can see that for, for, for heifers and steers, you're looking at 18 to 24 days, um, are 28 to 24 days older if it's just the parasite you're seeing, which is a more uh, recent infection, say, whereas it's up to 40, 43 days. If, if the animals are uh, already showing scarring of the liver, so it's been a longer-term infection, so there's been more of an effect. When it comes to liver abscesses, uh, th this is not quite as dramatic, but still it is significant. Eight to nine days, uh, animals that had liver abscesses were eight to nine days older at sort if they're heifers or steers. Five, five, uh, five to six days uh, for, for, for young bulls. And then for pneumonias, we're looking at 11 to 15 days older if they had pneumonia, uh, and young bulls about three days. So again, you can see for young bulls, the effect is less, probably just because the time of that they have these diseases is less, and so that cumulative e effect is not there. 
So I've thrown some numbers at you, but why does it actually matter? The animals are fairly healthy. If they've made it to the abattoir, they're still physically quite healthy animals. But the, 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 the fact is that older animals are less profitable. They cost money to feed and house. So what we're not considering is, if, is, is these, these indirect costs, these hidden costs. So if you think about, say, just take the, 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 the prevalence of liver fluke, say 5% of your animals um, take 38 days extra to finish. Um, how, how, much do, how much does an animal cost per day to feed? I've seen numbers from 50 cents to 5 euros, so it depends on your system. Think about how much, how much that would cost. At the very minimum, if you, if you say have two animals that had liver fluke and you prevented that by treating them, uh, you, you would cover the cost of the flu treatment for the herd. So, you know, if, if it's needed, as I mentioned, some areas for liver fluke, for example, in the south, southeast, you, you might not even need uh, liver fluke treatment. But where it's present, you, you, there's, a, there's definite savings to be had that you may not be aware of. The other thing about older animals, and, and Paul has already touched on this, is that just that they have a higher environmental footprint, and that's becoming increasingly important. So reducing age is all about efficiency, it's optimizing that cost per kilogram. And these subclinical losses these are, are hidden by default, that's, that's just their nature. And they, they result in a decreased pr um, production, and, and it's the additional upkeep costs. So it's not money changing hands as such, but we're still, we're still losing money over, over the long term. So the bottom line here when it comes to animal health is just that prevention is better than cure. The, the loss in performance and feed conversion that I've showed you here as a concept, it applies for other diseases. It's just the fact that these are the three diseases that we're actually collecting information on at slaughter, so we have this data available to us. But it applies for the others as well. And herd health planning to is, is, a, is a definite thing to improve profitability. It's been shown to improve profitability. You think that vaccination dosing costs money, uh, you know, but actually there are longer term gains. Looking at nutrition, housing, biosecurity, looking at all of those things, that's what herd health planning is about, is preventing diseases on farm. If you think about a respiratory outbreak, for example, if you vaccinate, you prevent an outbreak, you prevent the direct costs that you're giving to the vet, your labor costs looking after those animals, um, but also if there's chronic, a few animals might remain chronically ill, you're also preventing those production losses down the line. So prevention is better than a reaction. And the, the other thing about these performance measures, we, me we mention live weight all the time as, as a performance measure, average daily gains, but are we actually measuring them? That, that's some, it's a tool that we can use, otherwise we have no idea whether our performance is good or not. Um, what, what is the condition of adult animals, you know, looking at the slaughter reports that are available to us. And there was mention as well of the genetic improvements that have been made over the last uh, decade or so, but these gains can actually be lost just because of poor, poor animal health. So you could have the best animals in, in the block, but if, if there's an outbreak on farm, you, 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 lose, you lose those benefits. So it's just to, to, to re-emphasize uh, the importance of animal health, um, which I, I'm sure all of you understand. So thanks very much. Dr. Colin Byrne, beef researcher at Chagas Grange, discussed reducing the age at first calving for suckler cows, a key profit driver for beef farms. First of all, um, I'll cover um, some of the introduction of where we are, where we're at, and um, adding to what Paul has already presented. Um, there are, I suppose, many barriers that farmers see as, um, as see as barriers to adoption of reducing the rate of first calving. I'll discuss some of those um, and how we can deal with them and how they may not actually be as bad as um, we think they are. 
Um, there are advantages um, to reducing um, aged first calving. Um, as our director pushed at the beginning, um, we're constantly looking for win-wins. This is a win-win, um, and I'll discuss um, and show you how it is. And then I suppose we'll talk about the path to successfully reducing aged first calving um, with a focus on um, age puberty, calving dates, so when a heifer actually calves in her first year and how can this affect, I suppose, her um, lifetime performance in your herd, and then some care of these heifers in and around calving. And then I've also case studies, so it's more so, I suppose, um, some introduction um, to um, Shane Keevney um, who will be available, and I suppose has a very impressive um, setup with excellent uh, reproductive management. So look, um, here we have um, just under a quarter of he um, heifers um, calving between 23 and 26 months of age. Um, I suppose nationally, um, if we look at um, what reducing age first calving from 36 to 24 months um, of age can do, um, it's the equivalent of 0.6 of a tonne reduction in CO2 equivalents per cow. So what Paul spoke about earlier was very much at an overall industry level, um, and I'm going to talk a lot more at a farm level um, for yourselves. Um, so there's also major econ economic benefits in a grass-based system, so this is where our win-win is going to come in. And very important, I suppose, um, and key to success of this are meeting weight for age targets, and I'll go into this in a good bit of detail, um, and then also how bull selection um, is going to play an important part um, in these heifers when they're calf younger. So I suppose first off, um, if we went out to farm and we talked to farmers about maybe what are the reasons um, that you prefer not to calve at 24 months of age, um, there are a number of reasons. So the first one being um, that these heifers will be difficult to calve, um, and if we just look here, I suppose, at the proportion of heifers that calve um, unassisted at um, between 23 and 26 months of age versus um, three years plus. And you can see here that there's a very small difference. I think what's important to take from this data is that regardless um, of the age a heifer calves at, um, that a high proportion um, of first calvers require, will require some level of assistance. Okay, so that's going to be um, something that's very important. Also in this, um, bull selection is going to come into it. And again, um, weight for age. So I'm going to keep mentioning those two things throughout a lot of the presentation as key drivers of success of reducing age of first calving. Um, the other one then is um, that it's easier to get her in calf the first time, but get her back in calf the second time um, can be um, an issue. But again, if we look here at this um, ICVF data, you can see that, again, there's a very small difference in the proportion of um, heifers that calf um, for a second time. And this is going to be, I suppose, related to longevity. Um, so, and we'll talk about this again as well. Um, and then also, I suppose, one of the, the main things that we'll always hear is that um, if a heifer calves at this young age, she's going to be stunted her whole life, that it'll, um, I suppose, stop her reaching her full mature cow potential. But again, here you can see there's very, very little difference um, in the way this is. So, as I said, very large data set, over 130,000 um, heifers in this data set. And then one thing I think from this table, when I saw it first, it really, really struck me. Um, and this is um, about the longevity of this cow, okay? So a lot of farmers will say that heifers calved young will fall out of the system sooner than others. But this is not the case. It's actually quite the reverse. So you can see here that when heifers calved younger, um, between 23 and 26 months of age, just under 40% of these heifers lasted um, to their fifth parity, um, or I suppose reached their fifth parity. Some would have went on further, and there's a, I'll have a little bit of that um, on a slide in a minute. 
but heifers calving at three years and older, 0% reached their first uh, parity, or sorry, their fifth parity. And this is going to, I suppose, have a major um, <coughs> implication on the, suppose, the, the maintenance cost of this cow, and definitely over her lifetime. Um, if you have a cow that doesn't produce um, a be better number of calves, she's going to um, have higher overheads um, throughout her whole life. As I said, um, it is a win-win. Um, so this is, we just look at some of this analysis here um, based on a 40 hectare spring calving system um, using a calf to weaning system and comparing the economic um, and environmental performance of calving at 36 versus uh, 24 months of age. So um, on the economic side, I suppose, and again, um, I'm looking at this on, on a farm level basis, there's a 75% difference in the net margin um, per cow. And what happens basically in this is that your gross output starts to drop um, as you have, you're carrying um, I suppose, more animals or more unproductive animals um, on your farm. Um, eventually turn out to 38 euros a cow versus um, 150 euros, 152 euros per cow if she's calving at 24 months of age. On the environment, um, you can see here a 12% difference in the carbon footprint. So basically these cows are going to have one extra calf over their whole lifetime. Um, and I suppose this can basically be spread out or associated with, um, with emissions um, that can be then diluted down. So you can see here 11.2 um, kg of CO2 equivalent um, for heifers to calve at 24 months of age versus um, just under 13 if they're calving at um, 36 months of age. So um, there's a number of factors, I suppose, that we consider as affecting um, reproductive efficiency. Um, we all know reproductive efficiency as a key driver in, in any suckler system, um, three of them being age of puberty, postpartum interval, and conception rate. So I'm gonna focus, I suppose, for the next few slides on the um, age of puberty. So it's um, defined as the onset of sexual maturation. There's a number of different factors um, that we know influence age of puberty. The first one being breed, so early versus late maturing um, animals, plane of nutrition, and this is where I'm going to spend some time. And then also heterosis, so if we can crossbreed some of our animals that have some of these early, early maturing versus late maturing attributes, we can get an intermediate um, age of puberty. Um, it is also heritable, moderately heritable, so we can select um, for age of puberty. So currently the trait um, in, the, in our replacement index would be age of first calving and um, it would be a lot highly associated um, with age of puberty in heifers. So um, just as we move through this, we have a couple of things that we, I suppose we need to bear in mind and the importance of um, reaching age of puberty in these animals, okay? So in this, um, this was a data set of 320 heifers. And we can see here the effect, um, or so we want to see here the effect that being puberty at the beginning of the breeding season has um, on the conception rate of these animals. So from um, weeks six to uh, ten of the breeding season, in a twelve-week breeding season, there was a twelve to thirteen percent um, increase in conception rate if the heifer was pubertal at the beginning of the breeding season. Okay, by twelve weeks, um, this difference um, had eroded, or more of the heifers had gone in calf. But in a couple of slides, you're really going to see the importance of getting these heifers in calf early in the breeding season um, and what it does for their lifetime productivity. Um, also, just to mention, um, larger data, data sets, I suppose, at the same time had looked at um, the similar effects of being converted at the beginning of the breeding season, um, and they found, I suppose, similar results um, to what um, we reported in Grange. 
And so then if we look at um, the effects of plain of nutrition, okay? So these was um, heifers, these were heifers that were offered um, different diets early in life. So um, the mod diet would have grown about um, just over 0.6 um, kg per day versus the high growing at 1.16 kg or 1.2 kg um, per day. And then at nine months of age, so that's where we come in here at nine months of age on the um, on the one. So we follow differential feeding. Everything goes on the same diet, um, and then we start monitoring how soon these animals reach puberty. So basically, we monitor the whole way along, and then where the arrow has come in, you can see there that that's the start of the breeding season. So I suppose most notably about this is the proportions of animals that were uh, pubertal at the beginning of the breeding season. So if animals that had grown well early in life. 80% um, of those heifers were pubertal at the beginning of the breeding season versus the heifers that hadn't performed as well, only 20% um, were pubertal. So suppose, why is this important, okay? And basically what we're aiming for here is that we'll have heifers um, in calf earlier in the breeding season so that they'll then, then calve down earlier um, in their first calving season. So the um, continuous line here basically shows um, how long the heifers last, I suppose, um, if they have calved in the first 21 days of their first calving season. Okay, so if a heifer had calved in the first 21 days of her first calving season, um, just under 50% of those heifers lasted um, until, their, um, until their fourth uh, calving season, um, whereas if she calved after the first three weeks, only 25, or around 25% of those heifers last until their fourth calving season. And then I suppose if we continue out to look at the fifth parity, which is similar to the data that I showed before, and um, the results I suppose of this um, also stand true for those that had calved in the first three weeks of the breeding season. And what's basically happening here is in a seasonal system that uh, most of us are in in Ireland, basically these heifers, they have their calf early in the calving season and then they have more time uh, between calving and when we want them to go back and calf and there's less chance of them falling out of our system um, earlier in their life. And basically, um, I suppose the more calves this cow produces, the cheaper her overheads are going to be uh, throughout her whole life. So how do we do this? How do we rear these animals so that they are pubertal um, and that we can get them in calf to, to last a good long time in our herd? So I suppose importantly, um, pre-weaning average daily gain is very, very important. Um, we aim for, I suppose, aim for in around uh, 1.2 kg per day. And in a second, I'll just, I suppose, talk about the importance of that obviously from uh, needs to come from a very milky cow to achieve that level of performance good grassland management is also going to be really important and um, so that your as your cow is um, always uh, producing as much milk as she can and then when your calf does begin to consume um, grass that he has a high quality um, grass in front of him just to briefly look i suppose again here at the importance of pre-weaning plain of nutrition and what it does um, for age of puberty so on the top line of that table, you can basically see the four to eight months of age um, and that we saw a 70 day difference in age of puberty uh, between animals that had grown over a kg per day versus under a kg per day. And that was from four months to eight, four to eight months of age versus animals that um, I suppose had similar growth rates, but from eight to 13 months of age. So pre-weaning versus post-weaning. And in the post-weaning, although there was very different growth rates, we only saw a 13-day difference in age of puberty. So really, I suppose, driving home the importance of pre-weaning, playing of nutrition for um, influencing the age of puberty in these animals. 
Then when it comes to breeding, so I suppose we want to target um, weight at breeding, at the beginning of breeding of between 380 um, to 420 kg. So I suppose depending on our breed type here, some of our early maturing breeds will probably be between the lower end of this and our later um, heading up towards the upper um, of this range. Bull selection, um, we will say critical to this in and around recommendation of no more than 8% calving difficulty with very, very high reliability for the trade. So this is basically going to tell you how much of a guessing game you're going on with your, um, your calving difficulty. I spoke about stock bull versus AI here, and it was um, no stock bull, or it's very unlikely that a stock bull is going to be suitable on both heifers um, and cows, okay? And Shane, um, as we talked about Shane's farm, or his enterprise in a, in a while, we give you a great example here of where he's, I suppose, uses AI in his heifers and then a stock bull on his cows, where you have more selection for using AI, if we, when you use AI of suitable bulls. Um, and then just importantly, I suppose, around, um, very, very importantly, around, I suppose, heifers and ensuring that your heifers are pubertal, that there's good heat detection on farm. Okay, lots of farmers may miss the heats in their heifers, or um, it'll also indicate, I suppose, whether a heifer is cycling or not. And if you're recording these heats, you can see what cycling do I have an issue um, as you go forward. I suppose that's probably applicable to repro in general, not just um, reducing the age of calving and heifers. So then, um, just um, briefly in around the pre and the post calving care, okay? so. Heifers, they will need a little bit of extra special, extra attention. Um, so I suppose heifers in good body condition will be allowed with moderate quality silage similar to that of your cows. Aiming for a minimum body condition score of 2.75, okay? And anything lower than this, you're gonna have a heifer that's maybe too weak to calf, and she's definitely gonna to struggle to begin cycling or resume cycling once she calves um, in the springtime. And then if you are, I suppose, offering heifers um, that moderate quality silage, they should be penned separately, okay? Bullying is very, very likely to happen um, in a herd and introducing new, new heifers into your cow herd that will be a little bit smaller at this stage of their life. Then, um, in terms of post-calving um, and rebreeding, so monitoring body condition score is going to be very, very important here, okay? Um, and just any major drops at this stage could be um, a major issue for the heifer, definitely losing no more than half a body condition score. Um, the heifers should definitely be turned out, well, as any animals should be turned out to grass as soon as possible. And if they can't be offered them, you're kind of your higher quality silage, the type of silage that you would probably give weanlings or finishing animals greater than 70% um, dry matter digestibility. Um, and definitely give them priority, okay? These animals, we we're hoping that they'll be calving down around 8% of what their mature weight will be. Um, so they are still growing, also beginning to know milk that they're going to need to feed a calf and rear a calf. Um, so then just I suppose to summarise um, what I've spoke about, so we know that there are some risks um, with reducing age at first calving. These can be managed, weight for age, good bull selection are going to be very, very important um, to the success of this system. Um, and then I suppose early life, um, good early life growth and meeting those weight for age targets means your heifer is more likely to be pubertal at the beginning of the breeding season, should hopefully go in calf early. Um, then calve down early with greater chance of lasting in the herd. And then, as I said, we know it's a win-win in terms of both reduced uh, carbon footprint and being more profitable. Um, so, okay, at this stage, I just um, before Shane comes up, after, Shane is after the next speaker, and um, we just want to introduce um, Shane Keaveney. So Shane um, farms with his wife, Grania, in Ballinlock 
in Roscommon, um, just about, or just under an hour outside the road, as he informed me today. Um, on 30, in around 35 and a half hectares, uh, 37 spring calving cows, in a, um, and then normally in an under 16 month bull system, um, and the heifers that aren't used as replacements are finished in around 21 to 22 months of age, and um, stocked at 160 kg um, of organic nitrogen um, with Charlie Devaney, um, his local advisor, and then he also works with Gabriel and um, Trayers as part of the Future Beef Programme. And just very, very quickly, if you look at, I suppose, some of um, Shane's figures. So, um, I suppose, five star on average, on average across the herd and across every other category within his herd for replacement index. Um, and then I suppose just when we talk about in the context of um, his replacements, breeding his own replacements, all calving down two years of age, um, we just talk about the targets that he wants to meet. So you can see here his average daily gain is, um, or his pre-weaning average daily gain is um, very, very good. Um, this was 2021, uh, yeah, 2021 figures. They're actually improved for 2022. But you can see here, that I suppose on his heifers, he weaned them at, uh, or his 200 day weight was um, 258 kg. And one thing I suppose we just want to kind of point out where he is at that stage and where he needs to go next. So Shane will, um, or in this was breeding this year, those heifers were brought to the bull at an average of 410 kg. So that meant that they had 257 days to put on 152 kg, which is very, very achievable. And Shane's model was always that the cow must do her job, so he selects, that's the way he selects his cow, that they have to do, do their job. And if the cow does her job, he weans a heavier calf, and it means in that 257 days, he has less work to do. And I think it's a very, very great motto and a good, simple, a good, simple answer to the way the um, supper system should be run. So in just in terms of um, how Shane would do it, so his uh, very, very grass-focused farm, although it's a very, very heavy farm um, in Roscommon, um, uses I suppose, very good weaning practice in terms of um, forward creep grazing and feeding some con concentrates on the lead up to weaning, um, has a good vaccination and dosing uh, program, um, operates as was a gradual, no-stress uh, weaning system, and then once weaned, puts them into two priority groups. Okay, so under 16 month bull system, and then a good few heifers going as replacements, he needs continual performance from those animals. And um, you can see the weights there where his current um, cohort of animals are, they're both very, very good. And um, they're housed then with um, plenty of plenty of space. The animals can, I suppose, all lie down on very good quality silage and a kg of meal. So I suppose just um, this year, and I suppose really we're, we're lucky that we have that Shane can hear and tell us what he's done in the system this year because he is really, really pushing, I suppose, the, the ball out in terms of what he's do, doing and as, as, in, as innovative as you're going to get. So 12 maiden heifers um, to the bull at 410 kg. Um, heat detection, he was very aware of the importance of heat detection, so he this year hired a septimized bull and used a chin ball to do the, the heat detection for him and is now using sex semen on his replacement heifers that will breed his next cohort of replacement heifers. Okay, so 10 to 12 heifers uh, went in calf, six of them to sex semen, and um, used nine of his um, sex straws and then the other four to conventional AI. So there are some, I suppose, costs associated with this, um, and I suppose we will have Shane in a little while that can maybe go through, I suppose, his reasoning for it, but although there is additional cost with this, you have to remember 
that if he produces cows from this, the cost of that will be spread over the lifetime of the cow and it's going to be greatly uh, reduced. Um, just as well as some of Shane's stock, you can see here, I suppose, um, his cow base is predominantly um, Solaire limousine based. Um, and I suppose good, very, very um, healthy stock. And at that, Mr. Chairman, thank you. I'll leave it there. In this final presentation, Dr. Nikki Byrne, Chagas Grange, discussed if red clover has a role in your beef production system. And really, very much continuing on from where we've left off, like, has red clover a role in economically supporting higher levels of average daily gain that could support and help us achieve systems of reduced slaughter age or age of first calving? And we want to do this you know, from a, a low level of fertilizer use in our farm systems. So just to begin, I'm going to give a little bit of a context to, to my background and why I'm interested in red clover. I'm a livestock systems researcher, and my work to date has really focused on identifying animal genetics, grassland management, and different nutritional strategies you know, that can help achieve highly profitable, high output systems that can you know, support reduced age of the slaughter. And we've done a lot of that through genetics and feeding uh, of, our, of our grass diets. But really, when we go back and look at the figures, we can see that there's a big opportunity in our farm systems to reduce the level of nitrogen that we've been using. And we're really interested in you know, reducing the level of chemical nitrogen that we bring into grower crops. We want to reduce the amount of concentrate which contain nitrogen that come onto our farms. But the big one we want to do is to maximize animal performance. And really, we're interested in technologies that would allow us you know, satisfy those three needs. And the use of legumes, such as red and white clover, is one of them. And it's going to bring on the back of it, you know, you know, beef production system benefits, you know, driven by economics and environmental efficiency. But I suppose, what is the role of legumes, you know, in our beef production systems? And the role of them, you know, can either be predominantly as graze systems, if we're in regard to our white clover, or with red clover, you know, it's very much in a conservation system, you know, and helping achieve, you know, high animal performance over those winter months. And the reason we're interested in forage legumes such as red and white clover is because of their ability to biologically fix uh, atmospheric nitrogen and make it plant ready available in the soil. And on the back of that, we can reduce our dependence on chemical nitrogen fertilizer in our farm systems if we can achieve that. And if we can you know, um, use legumes to support low nitrogen systems, you know, we can get higher herbage production we can improve the soil quality throughout the year, and on the back of those, we can achieve higher levels of animal performance. But I suppose the first place that we should be focusing is on the grazing sward, which is you know, the, the most permanent basis that animals die over their lifetime, and the role of white clover you know, within those grazing swords is massive. But we should look at the, you know, the indoor winter periods where we're feeding our most expensive diets for animals, and that's where the role of red clover comes in. To see, can we shorten you know, that finishing period, or can we get higher average daily gains over that first winter and achieve you know, oh, better lifetime performance? And there's lots of positives of, of red clover. And if we look at that ability to biologically fix nitrogen, we know that red clover can achieve you know, between two to 300 kilograms of nitrogen fixation per hectare. So a very, very high level of nitrogen fixation. And you know, in silage systems, that can mean the elimination of chemical nitrogen application in those systems. 
And we know from numerous studies, you know, in Ireland and across Europe, that there's a very high dry matter production potential from our red clover silage sports. You know, greater than 15 tonne, you know, across a three to four harvest year, and longer in certain cases. And we know from forage legumes, and especially red clover, that they have a very high dry matter intake potential. And on the back of that higher dry matter intake potential, we can see increased levels of animal performance attainable. But I suppose on the back of all those positives, there could be some limitations to a red clover system. And I suppose the big one in an Irish scenario is the lack of flexibility that we have with our red clover sports. You know, we often in our farm systems, we've a very much blended approach to grazing, maybe one cut silage system. Whereas with our red clover, because of the plant structural differences, it is more typically suited to silage harvest production and not animal grazing. So that limitation or tying our hands a little bit in having the option of grazing a paddock can deter us from incorporating clover into the system. Or if we do choose to go ahead and sow clover, red clover on that, and do expose it to frequent animal grazing, we can drastically reduce the persistency and the economic advantage of that great clover sport. And typically, you know, in comparison to a grass plant or perennial ryegrass plant, which can, you know, remain highly productive for an excess of 10 years in the sport, red clover is typically of a shorter persistence, and maybe on a three to four year cycle, you know, in your typical farm system. And as well as that shorter persistence, you know, there probably is a requirement there to offer a four-year break in between red clover sowings. And that is to break down the build-up of soil-borne pests, as well as the spread of fungal diseases that may affect the crop. And I suppose in some of our silage systems, especially at low dry matters, we're dealing with a crop that's potentially high in nitrates, you know, we can come across difficulties in ensiling, you know, if, if we do not get sufficient wilting conditions or have a very poor level of grass within the sward. But I suppose before all of that, we have to establish the crop. And we're very lucky to have Mark McConley here this evening, who has established red clover into his farm system. And we'll, we'll hear from Martin as to why he's chosen red clover. But some of the agronomy and the, 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 the choice of his paddocks, the methods that he's used, and uh, a little bit of his experience. But I suppose in Ireland at the moment, we've no recommended list to identify suitable red clover varieties for use in our own environment. And we, you know, we, we strongly rely on the UK recommended list uh, to choose appropriate varieties that offer you know, very stable yields of, of dry matter and that can persist over multiple uh, harvest years. And, and I suppose when we're picking a variety very similar to grass, we might pick heading dates that will you know, indicate when those crops are going to flower, when we want to see a drop off in their, their, their quality, and when they need to be harvested. Uh, and we also have some ploidy differences there with diploid and tetraploid varieties and, and differences between those in terms of their persistence. But I suppose one of the big ones is when we sow it and the type of seabed we sow it into. And with all clover crops, look, the spring is the most reliable time. And it's the most reliable time in terms of soil moisture, soil temperature, but the big one is to get the post-management spray or post-management practices put in place, such as spraying, the cleaning off of the herbage at a low cover to allow light penetrate the sward and increase the proportion of clover. And as I said, it should be grown in rotation. But I think we're very fortunate enough if we sow our red clover with high quality perennial rye grasses, or even under sow with some white clover 
that when the red clover does burn out, which it will, be it three or four years in, that we have a very productive sward of perennial ryegrass and potentially white clover that can go, remain productive you know, in excess of 10 years and right off that cost for reseeding. But I suppose we have to understand the, the growth habit differences in our plants to understand their, their differences in management between red clover and white clover. If we look at our white, a red clover plant, we can see it's a very tall erect plant with a very deep taproot structure on it. Uh, but it's solitary, it grows from a solitary growing point and that means that it's more prone to damage, it's more exposed and when that growing point gets damaged, that plant is gone. Whereas if we look at a, red clo or a white clover plant, you know, that is a stoliferous growth habit which creeps along the base of the sward, putting down multiple growing points and can regenerate from those. So it's, it's more protected in the sward and can regenerate itself somewhat. So here we've, we've a drone footage uh, from some of our, well, what I thought was a good clover paddock until we put up a drone and, and saw what laid in, in, in the middle. And, you know, and we can see you know, under the same management in that whole environment that there is you know, certain conditions that really hamper the pers persistence of red clover. So we can see in the headlands of the paddock where there's a lot of you know, machinery passes, heavy trailers, a lot of turning of tractors, etc. And how that's damaging the clover plant and how we see it die out of the sward after a very, very short period of time. And I suppose if we look to the middle of the, the, middle of the paddock and only from chatting to different people, we found out that there was a ditch previously in the middle of the field and that was removed. Certain clay disturbance, clay brought into the site and you know, we have to look at you know, was there some eelworm or some other uh, parasite or, or, or pest you know, in the soil that has caused you know, the clover plant to burn out of that area? I'm not sure, but it just highlights you know, the, the more complex management that can be associated with red clover and the probably more diligent site choice that we have to put in place when picking a, a, a paddock to sow red clover in. But I suppose, how do we get the best out of our clover crops? It is really best suited to a multi-cut silage system. And really in a multi-cut silage system to get the best right out of clover, you have to take that first cut very early on. And we look at some of the benefits as to why we want to get that first cut removed. And the big one is we allow light into the sward to benefit our second and third cuts. And also by getting that first cut in earlier, we pull forward that final cut and we ensure that we're bringing our third cut forward, you know, pulling it you know, back, trying to avoid making late cut silage beyond uh, early September when we're going to have lower dry matters, poorer wilting and, and poorer preservation conditions for our silage. But we want infrequent cuts that allow about six to eight weeks before, between cutting intervals. And the reason we want to do that, if we look at the picture, we can see the big canopy that's there on the red clover plant. And that canopy intercepts sunlight and it can take that sunlight and create additional carbohydrates which are stored in the residual and the taproot of the plant or the crown. And you know, it's, it's that uh, carbohydrate reserve that will help improve the persistence of the plant and fuel the regrowth for after the, the, the harvesting of that crop. So if we don't allow sufficient time between harvest cuts, we don't fully replenish those carbohydrate reserves. And if we cut, you know, at maybe a month interval, we can deplete and run down those reserves in the plant and reduce the lifetime persistency. Some farmers you'd hear saying, oh, it's great to let the crop go to flower. 
It's probably not letting it go to flower, it's not really regenerating that way. It's just that you're allowing enough time between the harvest to replenish the, the full reserves uh, prior to cutting. Uh, but I suppose one thing, and Martin touched on it just chatting to him last week, is about the wilting conditions of the um, clover crop. We need a wilt, but you have to manage it very quickly to avoid leaf shatter when uh, tedding or raking in the crop. But I suppose you have to trust in the clover plant and trust in its potential. And it's only when we really pull nitrogen out of our red clover systems that we see the true benefits of it. And with the, 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 the removal of chemical nitrogen applications, we really see an increase in the proportion of red clover in the sward. And we know that at higher clover proportions, we're fixing more nitrogen. And on the back of fixing more nitrogen, we're growing more tons of dry matter. And that's really important. So if we spread red, uh, chemical nitrogen, we suppress the percentage of red clover, we get lower biological nitrogen fixation, and we reduce dry matter production. So really, less is often more in the scenario for red clover. And if we look at some plot work from, red, uh, uh, from Chagas Grange, completed by Dan Clavin, and this is over a six year period under a kind of a four cut simulated grazing system, we can see that the perennial ryegrass and red clover under a zero chemical nitrogen application system could support the same level of dry matter production to a perennial ryegrass receiving an excess of 400 kilos of chemical nitrogen. So that's a massive, massive ability and gives us great confidence in, in our red clover crop. So we're interested in incorporating red clover into our dairy beef system uh, as a component study. And this is the performance from our two to three year old uh, red clover swords over the last year. We can see that those swords in 2022 produced an excess of 19 tonnes dry matter of, of um, between three silage cuts and one aftermath grazing. But what we can see is the clover proportion across the year is plotted. And we can see from the first cut in May, how we increased the red clover percentage up from 38% by removing that herbage and allowing light down into the base of the sward, you know, we get that clover percentage up to 87% uh, for the second cut and 88% for the third cut silages. So that you know, just shows the importance of light, the importance of that early cut. And if we delay that cut any later, we're pushing that third cut out into late September and really making questionable silage, which isn't cheap to do. So I suppose we have to look at, you know, how well does this silage feed? And look, we know all the studies nearly indicate that red clover grass silage has an increased dry matter intake potential. And on the back of that, we can, you know, maintain or even improve animal performance. Um, and it's the chemical and morphological characteristics of the red clover plant that support this higher level of intake and subsequent performance. But just one thing, I suppose I've had a lot of organic producers in the last week sending on silage analysis and different reports, and probably, you know, you know, citing that, you know, the feed uh, reports are probably underestimating the feed potential of our red clover silages using some of our, our crude uh, feed values that, that we use. And, you know, this happens because, you know, the way the, the, the fibres break down in the red clover plant, as well as the way the protein breaks down. And if we talk and look at the digestibility of the plant, typically red clover, or, uh, red clover silages have a lower digestibility. 
And that makes sense if you go back and think that the plant is a very tall, erect plant, it takes a lot of fibre to support that structure. But it's the type of fibre that is present in it. And the fibre that is present has a higher level of completely indigestible fibre. But the fibre that is digestible breaks down at a much faster rate. And it's this faster rate of breakdown of the fibres and a reduced particle size in the rumen that causes it to pass through the animal quicker, reducing rumen fill and facilitating that higher intake potential of the animal. And when we look at our protein, you know, so our dietary nitrogen is, is an indirect measure of, of our crude protein values. And typically, red clover uh, crops are typically higher in this crude protein level. Uh, but really, the type of protein that is present is, is, what, is, is what is really important. And the type of protein that is present in red clover it, it goes through uh, certain uh, forms of protection. And that protection can prevent this protein from degrading in the, either in silage bales or in the pit, but most importantly in the rumen of the animal. We don't see this uh, protein broken down in the rumen, we see more of it getting through to the small intestine, where we get greater levels of absorption and diversion into the production of extra animal uh, protein or growth. So sometimes as well from our silage analysis, the crude protein values may appear low, but we must take into account that these are zero nitrogen systems. So we're not, you know, we, we may um, be underestimating the true uh, level of protein um, that is available in, in some instances. And we can see that from our, our feed um, analysis from Chagas Grange. If we look at our first cut silage uh, and look at the red clover silage, we can see it's coming back at about 12.5% crude protein. Whereas with our printed ryegrass cut the same day, but managed under a conventional level of chemical nitrogen, we can see that that's a 14% uh, crude protein crop. And that's at a 37% uh, red clover uh, percentage. Whereas if we go forward into our, our second cut silage, we can see, again, as you'd expect, with 88% red clover, we see a decline in the digestibility but we see an increase in the crude protein value of that crop on the back of increased levels of red clover. So look, our work and going forward is trying to, look, we're feeding back these silages in a study this, this winter and looking at what is the animal response in terms of intake, growth, and subsequent growth over the second grazing season. But I suppose, what does it mean to the animal? And, you know, red clover diets will increase uh, dry matter intake for animals. And that even despite often lower digestibility. And if we look to some of the, the last work that was completed in, in, on this island on red clover silages was in 1982. And they found that red clover diets over the first winter of dairy beef weanlands at the same digestibility to the, the grass silage could support an additional 300 grams of average daily gain per day. So that is a massive, massive difference. Whereas if we look at our finishing diet, and at a 12% lower digestibility, you know, red clover could support higher intakes and, you know, slightly better uh, or a very similar uh, average daily gain in our finishing animal. But really what we should be focusing on is having high digestibility red clover crops to capitalise on all of the advantages of red clover. So look, we have a research project 
uh, in place this year, and we're trying to see where is the best response from a red clover silage. Not all our silage is going to be red clover, so do we get a better response from our weanling or from the finishing animal? And I suppose one thing we have to look at is does it pay us? And Peter Doyle has completed some very thorough uh, feed cost analysis where he's compared you know, a two-cut conventional grass silage system on a per bale basis to a three-cut red clover uh, uh, silage system. And if we just take a direct comparison of the two-cut grass silage system to a three-cut red clover system using a blend of uh, animal slurry and imported 0730 as the source of nutrition, we could see straight away that there was an economic advantage of three euros 30 on a per bale basis. But where we improve the use of our animal slurries and go to an all slurry system, that economic advantage in the three cut side uh, red clover system increases up to six euros 30 per bale. And if we could improve the lifespan of that red clover sword up uh, a further two years, from four years up to six years, that could bring that economic advantage of the red clover silage bale up to €8.40 ahead of a grass silage bale. And if we were to see an increase of 25% in fertiliser price, we'd see that economic advantage of red clover silage you know, increase in excess of €10. Euros. However, if we saw a decrease in, in our chemical nitrogen prices, we'd see you know, the attractiveness of red clover reduce somewhat in comparison to a grass-only system. So just looking at some of the current research that we have ongoing at Chagas Grange, be it on the dairy beef side or with Peter on the suckler side, you know, we're interested in agronomy. We're interested in identifying the best varieties for use in Ireland. And we're interested in the, the role of nitrogen application in our red clover systems. We're looking at dry matter production and the stability of that over time. We're looking at the feed value, what it means to intake, the performance, the conversion efficiency of animals. And then on a farm system basis, what does it do to the nitrogen balance? Is it economical? What does it mean to the environment? And what's the relative feed cost of red clover to other uh, feedstuffs? So just to conclude, look, there's opportunity to reduce our dependence on chemical aid. And that's going to be facilitated by red and white clovers. And they have the ability you know, to fix massive levels of chemical nitrogen. And look, there is the potential for improved animal performance. But as was that our management will largely dictate if this is realised on commercial farms. And as was, we're going to hear from Martin about the suitability of red clover, you know, in his bull beef production system where average daily gain is everything and to displace expensive concentrate out of his diet. You know, what role has Red Clover you know, got in, in helping him support his, his system objectives? And look, there is going to be increased levels of management. It's primarily focused towards silage production. It's probably more suited to your drier soils that have greater flexibility. Uh, but it can result in a lower cost of production. But that cost advantage is dependent on the yield you can get, how long you can sustain that yield over how many years it will persist for, and fertiliser price will also dictate the attractiveness of it. That's all for this week's episode, and you can find the links to the presentation on the Chagas YouTube channel. They'll also be included in the podcast notes. You can catch up on all other shows and interviews from the Beef Edge podcast on the Chagas website at chagas.ie, or you can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. 
Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss a show. For all other updates from our beef programme, keep an eye on our Twitter and Facebook pages. Until next time, I'm Catherine Egan and thanks for listening.